0: LegalizeFreedom.com Any place, any time is a good time for coke. Sing! Only coke, cola gives you that refreshing new
1: feeling.
0: From New York, Judy Me going to tell us about the wonderful world
2: of Cameraland.
1: Well, Ed, all America is Cameraland, and it's yours just for the picture-taking, now let me show you.
2: We're in a supermarket where Mrs. Evans oh, hello. is about to compare Bird's Eye's new frozen breakfast drink, Awake, to the flavor of frozen orange juice. First, the orange juice. In the
0: afternoon, when things slow down, when you're wondering what to do. Let's go!
2: Go bowling! Looks like somebody's been doing some shopping. And that means somebody's been doing a lot of walking and getting more and more worn out. Because by the time a woman assembles a complete spring wardrobe, she's generally covered a lot of floor space and of stores. So it's little wonder that smart shoppers everywhere take time out to pause and refresh. Where else but in the fountain where they serve ice-cold coconut.
1: Being married is no excuse to let needless bad breath and tooth decay make romance fade, fade, fade away. Remember, this is the 1958 Etzel, the car that presents originality and elegance never seen before in any car at any
0: price and presents them in 18 different models. When was the last time you had a tender, juicy steak? Well, right now you can buy 300 pounds of USDA Choice Beef Sides for $1.35 per pound for 26 weeks at only $15.57 per week. At no extra charge, you receive a 60-pound free bonus. 10 pounds of pork chops, 10 pounds of lean bacon, 10 pounds of pork steaks, 10 pounds of ham, also 20 pounds of frying chickens. A total of 360 pounds for only $15.57 per week for 26 weeks.
2: Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is John Michael Greer, who joins us to discuss his book, The Retro Future, Looking to the Past to Reinvent the Future. To most people paying attention to the collision between industrial society and the hard limits of a finite planet, it's clear that things are going very, very wrong. We no longer have unlimited time and resources to deal with the economic and environmental crises that define our future, and the options are limited to the tools we have on hand right now. The retro future is about one very powerful idea, deliberate technological regression. Technological regression isn't about going back, it's about using the past as a resource to meet the demands of the present, and maybe the future too. It starts from the recognition that older technologies generally use fewer resources and cost less than modern equivalents, and it embraces the heresy of technological choice, our ability to choose or refuse the technologies pushed by corporate interests. People are already ditching smartphones and going back to so-called dumb phones and landlines, and e-book sales are declining while printed books rebound. Clear signs among many that blind faith in progress is faltering and opening up the possibility that the best way forward may well involve looking back. Hello and welcome, John, and uh, thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com.
0: Well, thank you for having me back on. It's always a pleasure.
2: Okay, John, now today we're going to be talking about some of the issues raised in a recent book of yours um, entitled The Retro Future, looking to the past to reinvent the future. Before we dive into that, just give listeners a quick potted bio of yourself, your background, your work in general. That's that's becoming increasingly challenging these days.
0: Um, at any rate, um, myself, uh, born in born in the Seattle area, I now live on the other side of the North American continent. I'm a writer um, and blogger by trade. I've been a number of strange things over the course of my life, including the um, Grand Arch Druid of an American Druid Order. Um, but these days, I, I just you know the what it says on a business card is writer. Um, I have been very interested and very concerned, I should say, since I was um, in my teen years about where we are heading as a society, um, whether we can sustain the kind of um, extravagant lifestyles we now think of as normal on the resources we have left and issues of that sort. Back in 2006, I launched a blog on the subject expecting that maybe 15 people would ever end up reading it. Um, It peaked at at a top readership of about a third of a million people a month. That was the Archdruid Report. Um it was put to bed after after 11 years when I moved to a different platform, and I'm now at um, ecosophia.net, E-C-O-S-O-P-H-I-A.net, and blogging weekly on a range of exceptionally strange subjects, including the Future Industrial Society, but not limited to that. So um, I write lots of books on a giddy range of subjects, and one of them, the one we'll be talking about today, as, as you noted, is The Retro Future.
2: Yes. Now, you said in the early part of the book that it kind of forms a little bit of an informal trilogy along with a couple of your other works. Um, A book called After After Progress, which we've discussed on a previous show, and Retropia, which was a a piece of uh, fiction. And uh, so perhaps just explain the rationale behind what you were achieving what you were uh, putting a footnote on perhaps with the retro future because as uh, we actually discussed in our last interview together your kind of focus has changed a little bit so that but the, the retro future was kind of still an important way for you to to sum up Oh yeah, very much so. Um, basically, I had been working since since I began blogging
0: back in two thousand and six. I was starting, I was trying to explore, as I noted a moment ago, the future of industrial society, where we are headed as a civilization, and um, what we might want to do about that. And so, a lot of my early books had been primarily concerned with sketching out how, how did we get ourselves into the blind alley we're now in. What can we expect to happen? <clears throat> what can we expect as a What can industrial civilization expect? What can the United States of America expect on the downside of its imperial era? And so on and so forth. There are a range of different books. But one of the things that became increasingly clear to me as I as I blogged, as I published these books, as I dealt with publicity, as I dealt with questions, of course, and and comments, is that the thing that stands in our way, the thing that is really the primary issue that we have to grapple with is a religious faith in progress. Okay, people say, well, Christianity is our established religion, only in a purely legal sense and only in, you know, those parts of the world such as, such as your country where, where that's legally the case. The actual established religion of the modern industrial world is belief in progress. Progress will save us. We are on our way from the caves to the stars. It's this grand mythological vision and that increasingly has nothing to do with facts in the real world. Um, and, and yet, people won't see that. People are even though they, you know, they get up, they they get up every morning and they go out into a world that, where everything is more run down, more polluted, more degraded, more disintegrated than it was 20 years ago. People are saying, no, 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 we're still progressing. We're still on that, you know, that that imaginary journey to the stars. And so it became very, very much of concern to me to try to sort out where did the myth of progress come from? How, how did it develop the kind of religious appeal that it has to people nowadays? And how could we take it apart and what happens when that religion dies? Because, of course, religions do die, especially civil religions like the faith in progress. You think of what happened in the Soviet Union, okay? When everyone back in the Soviet Union's heyday was was well, most people convinced themselves, at least, that communism was on its way to you know uh, liberating the whole world, and it would all be this you know, the perfect um, Marxist paradise where the state would wither away and everyone would you know, get peaches and cream forever, even though the Soviet Union was sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into dysfunction and finally collapsed. That kind of thing happens often in history. We're facing that same situation with progress. So I started the the first book in that trilogy um, after Progress is discussing exactly those issues. The second one, Retrotopia, it's a it's a work of fiction, a work of utopian fiction, basically imagining a a modern society, a fragment of the post United States America after this country falls apart in the civil wars to which we're we're very likely headed. Um, stands progress on its head and say, okay, why don't we just look at the past and say what works there and borrow that instead of trying to go forward? How about we look at what worked? Because what we're doing now doesn't. And so, um, that was, that was an interesting experiment. And, and then there's the retro future, which is, which is buckling down and talking about, okay, here and now, we're dealing with a world in which progress has failed. It's a failed God. It is a failed religion. It's not going to take us to the start. It's not even going to bring us a functional society of the sort we had 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. What do we do now? How can we keep the best achievements of the last 30, 40 years? while well, getting rid of the dysfunctional ones, how can we treat the past as a smorgasbord from which we can pick things that actually work? And so that's the basic theme of the retro future. It's an attempt to kind of wrap up much of what I've been trying to say for quite a few years now on my blog and elsewhere. And in in a certain sense, it's kind of my final statement on the future of industrial society. Nothing that I have seen over the last uh, dozen years or so has maybe changed my basic assessment of where we're headed, the things that I talked about in The Long Descent, the ecotechnic future, and some of my other earlier books on the subject. Um, So it's really a matter of wrapping things up and saying, okay, this is where we are. This is what we can do about it, and there's actually quite a bit we can still do about it if we pull our head out of our, <clears throat> and notice that, that the, the mythology of progress, the notion that progress will save us, that we have to keep on doing the same thing over and over again even though the results are uh, getting worse and worse. So that's kind of, that, that's kind of the, the potted story of the trilogy and also of the retrofuture.
2: Well, sometimes, you know, I'd like to reframe the very word progress, what that means, because it's almost kind of been hijacked, hitched to the, a certain type of development in a certain, di- in a certain set of directions that are ter- turning out to not be beneficial for us. I would say that a lot of the di- directions that we could go in, a lot of the developments that we could make that you sketch out in the book, to me personally, and certainly to you, would count as progress. Progress means, in my mind, Okay, you can progress towards a disaster, I suppose, but progress as inherently positive means, you know, moving to a situation which is better and improved. Given that definition, I think we'd both be advocates of progress, but it's a question of what it, it's a question of what it looks like. It's a bit like the notion of, like, the word global elite has kind of spoiled the word, the word elite for us because they come to be associated with uh, a certain type of group. Of um, individuals and institutions, with progress, it's now said progress has to mean shiny glass and steel and AI and AT and all the rest of it.
0: Oh, very much so. The, the the difficulty, though, with just trying to, on the one hand, trying to take the word progress and turn it back. Now, of course, this happens all the time. Um, when I was in my teens, for example, solar panels, um, solar heat-producing greenhouses, this kind of thing were the cutting-edge of progress. Nowadays, it's considered retrogressive. Um, progress just means w- heading toward whatever comes next. Who decides what comes next? Well, it's usually a Donnybrook between the the purveyors of various technologies and things like that. Um, but the problem is, if you believe in, if you, the faith in progress assumes that change is always a good thing. Now there are definitely times when change is a good thing, but there are also times where you need to stop and say, "Okay, no, this is about as good as it's going to get. Maybe we should keep what we've got here, here, and here, while changing these other things over there that need work." Um, So on the one hand, there's that that this this uh, the bias in favor of change for the sake of change is a real problem nowadays because we have reached now he i'm about to utter heresy okay i hope any any true believers in the religious progress you probably want to cover your ears right now and like go go pray to <laughs> elon musk or whoever your latest deity is um okay um there is such a thing as a point of diminishing returns the law of diminishing returns applies to just about everything okay there is there is too much of everything there is also too much progress there are there are points where you, you can push things in any field. You can push things to a certain point, and it gets better and better, and then it stops getting better. And if you keep on pushing it, it gets worse. Um, uh, Microsoft Windows is, I think, the classic example here.
1: <laughs> I,
0: I, I mean, th- most people I know consider Microsoft Windows Seven um, the 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 good stopping point. Still, if you you know if you get a if you get a used computer, that's usually what they upload because everything more recent than that sucks. And the more complex they make it and the more, bu- the more stuff they pile onto it, the buggier it is, the slower it is, the more um, the, the, the more um, absurdly extravagant it is on computer resources and so on and so forth. Um, in the same way, what, what's the iPhone 10, I think it is, is bombing. Nobody wants it because it has all of this gunk that nobody needs. And people are actually going back to flip phones because that was the point where, for their needs, uh, cell phones reached their peak. This is an unthinkable concept in modern times because everyone's stuck on this idea of progress. We have to keep on going in a straight line. Well, you know, if you keep on going in a straight line, sooner or later you go off a cliff. And that's one of the major points that I'm trying to make with the retrofuture. In a lot of things, we've actually gone past the point of, of diminishing returns into negative returns, into catastrophically negative returns. And yet people keep on insisting, no, no, we must keep on going.
2: Yes, well, um we are going to talk mostly about where we go from here and things that can be done, because as you pointed out, there is still a lot that can be done. But before we get to that, we will address just a couple more dimensions of the problem. You mentioned one of them just then, uh which is basically when new no longer means improved. And I think there's a lot of people now discovering to their cost that the latest versions of things, and this has been going on for some time, but it's getting worse. The latest versions of things are not actually delivering the same functionality, the same what they enjoyed about the original product. And even though there's still a danger that we can become acclimatized to this, that is to say you can forget how good, relatively speaking, Windows 7 was after a while, um, particularly with new generations of technology now. Uh, they get released very quickly. That in itself may be a reaction to dwindling sales and fading uh, love affair with new gadgets—if you see what I mean—but still, new versions of things keep coming out, and it's very easy to sort of like get in all of that whirl of development to get, uh, as I say, lose sight of, of what was good about before. So, yeah, you know, when "new" no longer means improved is now really one of the the major dimensions of what, what we're gra- grappling with out there in consumer land. And that's the thing is, it's not merely that "new" longer no longer means improved.
0: Increasingly, "new" means Less functional, less useful, and yeah, some people can forget that, but for how long? One, this is why we have things like, um, you know, the 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 big launch of the iPhone 10, which has turned out to be a bomb. Um, it, they've had to cut their manu their menu, They they had to, of course, Apple had all kinds of exalted ideas about how much they were going to sell, and they had to cut their manufacturing runs by half because nobody wants it. And in the same way, um, I I remember when they they used to charge money for Windows. Windows 10, they're trying to give it away for free, and nobody wants it because even at that, it's not worth what they're charging. Um, And this is the thing. When it is less effective, when it's dramatically less effective, more cumbersome, more bug-ridden, more problematic, um, people do figure that out. Another really good example right here, and it's one that, that I track fairly precisely, be as a writer, um, the the great um, ebook revolution. Okay, when ebooks first hit the market, we had the Kindle, we had all these other things, the Nook and so on, and a lot of the usual um, techie brigade were insisting at the top of their lungs that you know paper books were were completely obsolete, and people would get rid of them, and it was just a total waste of time to print books on paper anymore. everything would be electronic, and a bunch of people did pile into the e readers and ditch their libraries. And then six months, or a year, or two years back, they were going, "What have I done?" Because on the one hand, um, you know, you could lend a book; you can't usually lend your ebook without your the um, publisher getting pissy at you. Um, and many of the publishers retain the right to simply um, cancel the erase the book from your reader anytime they want to for whatever reason. And there's all kinds of other problems. And also, there's a lot to be said for the simple. The simplicity, the convenience, the many advantages of the paper book. And so an enormous number of people who got rid of their books are now buying them back. And although a lot of people are still using e-readers, especially, you know, it's convenient for travel, you know, there, there are various uses. It's becoming more of a niche product, and sales of paper books are actually booming again. So here we have an example of a technology that went too far. And it's gradually, you know, I I suspect it'll be around as long as the, you know, as long as the techno basis to maintain it remains, although how long that will be, we'll have to see. But people are, I mean, people, I'm going to borrow um, one of Abraham Lincoln's phrases. You know, you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. People will sooner or later catch on to the fact that they're being rooked by the latest new techno gimmick. And they'll walk away. And they're doing it right now. They're doing it in a big way. This is why we have maker's fairs. This is why um, a lot of old-fashioned crafts are booming these days, because people are tired of the trendy, tacky, um, you know, sweatshop-manufactured stuff that you, you get. And they're learning the pleasures of making something that is actually of some quality.
2: It's interesting just mentioning um, e-readers and decline thereof. One thing I've noticed: book publishing, for example, partly a response to the you know e-reader um, incursion, uh, the assault. Is it uh, you had what you would call uh, niche publishers or boutique publishers? Uh, even sometimes, if they were little, small imprints that appeared to be independent but actually owned by big publishing houses, but they were doing very nice editions of books, sometimes of classics, sometimes a new book would come out and just be a really beautiful object in itself. And it's a little bit like what happened in the music industry in response to downloading and uploading and all the rest of it and clouds is that uh, vinyl sales, for example, the last decade or so have been climbing steadily. Now, they're still very small compared to what they were back in the day, of course. But record companies um, have been focusing, and these days that can mean one guy in a spare room, you know, have been making very nicely packaged products, you know, pieces of craftsmanship in their own right. Just beautiful objects. You can see this across a lot of different industries and a lot of different areas um, of products. um, Not so much services, that's more difficult to do, but products being made. Just going back to handcrafting, or just think, really thinking about the materials you use and added value, but added value in a very physical way as a response to the the non physical uh, of the ebook of the of iTunes or whatever it happens to be. So I think that in itself, the fact that that's growing, um, albeit still a very small proportion of over the overall market, I, you know, that that's definitely significant. I think, and what what started as a response to, uh, you know, the the digital takeover, as it was seen as at the time, may actually end up being the, um, the cutting edge of something that starts to become much more mainstream in future. I think you're quite right.
0: I've watched this in the publishing industry in a very large way. Um, for example, my, I, I, have a, I have a series of novels in process at this point. I did that, so it's a long story in and of itself, but it's being brought out by a, by a relatively small press. The first two volumes are out, and they're being produced, they're being initially released in a fine edition. And it's you know beautifully crafted. It's hardback. It's the kind of book you just love to actually have. There's actually a fine edition, and there's the oh my god over the top edition, Um, and because people are starting to wake up to the fact that the the cheap mass market crap is cheap mass market crap, and maybe it's time to have something that actually brings you, brings you some pleasure to have. At the same time, there are also people who are using um, the, the electronic um, things that we've got available at this point to produce niche publishers in, a, in another sense. There are a lot of little book publishers now that are using print-on-demand technology and their electronic stuff like this to generate very small runs, books that would not have been publishable 10 years ago. Because you know they're going to sell like 300 copies in their lifetime. Um, nowadays, you can publish those. You can find a home for them. That used to be the case a hundred years ago. You would have little publishers that just you know um, would would do little runs off of a local printing press, and that was just that was a very standard thing. Those got squeezed out by the big boys, but now they're back using a slightly different technological suite so we've got this we we've got this sort of burgeoning um process whereby um a lot of the sort of monolithic um you know um everyone must you know must read the same mass market book this kind of business that's going out the door now And that this seems very positive to me, and this is one of the reasons why I why the the, my book, The Retro Future, is ultimately a very hopeful book. Although there you know, we've we've basically made prepared some really ugly messes for ourselves in the future. There are also some very useful positive possibilities that that
2: we can we can actually do some things with. In moving forward, one key dimension of how things might be done differently. In future is that com- compared to the economy that we currently have, you know the the, the frantic twenty four seven burn through the planet's resources as fast as possible type economy that we will need to scale down. As I've said before, you know do less, use less, be more, as it were. And there's kind of a dichotomy in there in the sense that in terms of resources, for example, going forward as a global economy, we would look at. Uh, using less um, of things that we have less of and producing less things. For example, like oil, rare earth metals, certain types of chemicals. If we were to go forward in a sort of trajectory that you envisage might be healthy, we would use less of these things, produce less of them. But also we're facing a situation where there are less of them, for example, in terms of fossil fuels or r- rare earth metals. And the same equation could be applied to machines in general, to information technology now, this plays into a situation a scenario that you've described in the past in your books, which is like um decline of you know decline of the sort of economy we have now moving on to something else being a step down process because we have a growth dependent economy in, in in most parts of the world, so to produce less things to consume less things presents a problem in itself It's kind of good in one hand because yeah we're we're burning through less of this stuff, so that's good but The economic model that we're operating with really relies on, on that increasing all the time. So hence, we could see a series of situations where it's like a sudden shock in one industry or one resource stream or another, followed by a period of relative stability. And that, I think, can be good or bad. For example, it can be good because a period of relative stability after a crisis allows us to catch our breath and basically adjust to... The new way of being, you know, doing less and having less, but also it can lull us into a false sense of security vis a you know, oh well, that was, there was a crisis there, that's over with, it can't happen again, and then it does. So I'm presenting a situation of, of real contrast there, and I think it's going to be a, bit of a whipsaw effect in many areas of life going forward the next few decades. Oh, oh very much so. And in fact, I, I do expect every time we have
0: a a period of relative stability as, as we ha- we're in one now, although it seems to be coming to an end around us, um, yeah, of course the immediate thing that everyone 's going to do is okay that 's over with, and now we'll you know pick up and go on. but you notice each time we pick up and go on it's that the actual level of many levels of consumption are being forced down at least in among large parts of the population the The thing with the growth economy is that it's actually spun in a very in a certain sense, a very funny direction, a very amusing direction, because we have a growth of the paper economy, okay we have the the Dow Jones uh, you know industrial averages over in our stock market over here is you know was until recently actually, I think it's still pretty you know pretty close to its record highs. It hasn't dropped that far yet yet. Um, but does that equal um, actual Wealth in actual goods and services, or is it just a lot of numbers being juggled? Mostly, it's numbers being juggled. If you go, you know, if you, if you go for a walk in most neighborhoods in the United States these days, it's pretty clear that almost everybody is poorer than they used to be, and the ones, the people who are richer, they're richer in abstract numbers. They don't actually have this, the goods and services that they used to have 20 years ago. Even the very well off. I mean, you take it back even further, and it's just astonishing. If you compare the lifestyles that are being lived by rich people in 2018 to the lifestyles that their equivalents lived in 1918, there's no comparison. Even the rich now are poorer in terms of actual goods and services than they were back then. In 1918... Uh, you know, a millionaire in America lived like a monarch. They had the servants all around them. They had the, you know, uh, just this incredibly lavish, gorgeous palatial lifestyle. Nowadays, not so much. They, owe, they they, all own a lot of numbers. They all have, you know, uh, vast amounts of of stocks and bonds and derivatives and this abstract set of numbers and that abstract set of numbers. But in terms of their actual lifestyle, They're compared to the, the golden age of the American elite before, you know, before the second, before 1929, I should say. Um, they're actually relatively impoverished. And this is the thing I think that needs to be paid attention to. It's very easy for a quote, growth economy to continue with paper growth where it's just a matter of, you know, the stock market rises, the the notional value of investments rise, the notional net worth of rich people rises, but what can they actually buy? What does their lifestyle actually support? For most people, at least here in America... um, Every year, lifestyles become um, more impoverished. Lifestyles become less lavish. Um, we, we go from the vast Cadillacs of my youth, these cars that were <clears throat> the size of, of boats, um, to the rather understated little cars that pop down the streets today. You go from sprawling suburban mansions. Of course, we have McMansions nowadays. They're made of ticky-tacky. You kick them hard. The walls fall down. Okay, But you go from the the big, sprawling suburban mansions to the really smaller and more compact houses that most people live in in America today. You go from um, a lifestyle where it's very easy to get a lot of goods and a lot of services to a lifestyle where that's actually increasingly difficult. And it costs. It costs much more. So what's been going on is we have a growth economy on paper. We have a growth economy in terms of paper wealth, but we've actually been declining for decades now. And I could very well see things continuing that way. See, the, the, the economic models continue to churn away merrily and uh, the stock market 20 years from now, you know, the Dow Jones is at 100,000 or what have you. And um, most Americans are living lifestyles uh, more or less comparable to the 19th century. And, you know, the very rich have the kind of luxuries that ordinary suburbanites had in the 1950s.
2: Yes, well, in my last segment, I mentioned, you know, the, the scaling down. Uh, whether voluntary or forced, and kind of the, the, the good and bad, the challenges and the opportunities that would flow from that. Just before we move on to, like, the solution part of all this, or ideas for where we could go, I mean, say, say solution makes it sound like we're about to present a silver bullet, but, of course, the, the march of progress has to be seen to be going on, and if it's being challenged left, right, and centre in all sorts of spheres, then it'll still pop up somewhere else uh, as like, oh, well, yeah, of course we're facing... Uh, you know, resource depletion and sort of wars in all corners of the world. But look over here. This is signs that uh, we are, in fact, on our way to the stars. This being particularly relevant on the way to the stars because technology, you know, um, particularly artificial intelligence, anything that comes under that umbrella. Um, and you mentioned Elon Musk earlier on. The, these are areas where people can still be pointed to, uh, as saying, well, yeah, okay, we got problems, but actually here's where we're moving forward. And by the way, the problems we are actually facing are kind of trivial when you consider what Elon's up to. So, who,
0: who cares if the, if the polar ice caps are melting and Miami's going to be underwater in 20 years and um, <laughs> we can launch
2: a car into orbit? Exactly, exactly. However, when we were talking earlier about when new no longer means improved... I was thinking of the fact that uh, the rate of innovation and in technology appears to be slowing down, and there are certainly signs of decline in the in the whole AI in these sort of uh, TED Talk type magical visions of the future. I mean, I think the space program uh, and what well, for example, what Elon Musk has just done, launching his car into uh, the upper. Orbit, I have to say, not, I mean, people use the word space, you know, like, again, it's kind of maddo space, you know, but it's kind of like, his car's probably visible on a clear night, if you see what I mean, from, from the earth, with a telescope. So, the, the, the fact that, I mean, they're touting this. I remember, um, what was Musk's comment about this? I heard it on the news today or yesterday something about the i'm paraphrasing now but it was something along the lines of like amazing things can still be achieved or magical things or you know using the word dreams or something like that but you you, you, you'd think it was like the second coming but i thought well hang on a minute if we had guys walking on the moon in the 60s you're telling me that this somehow rivals this
0: firing firing a car into the upper atmosphere yeah exactly Exactly. Now, the thing—the thing that no—that he's not—that I don't think he took the time to mention—is that all that he's actually doing is replicating a scene from a movie in the late '70s when he was growing up, um, the which was the movie Heavy Metal, and it opens with this scene where this car it comes, you know, out of orbit and does a reentry and lands on the ground, and he's so he's basically just rehashing a piece of 1970s um, pulp. Science fiction. And that's that's a lot of what's going on now. Have you noticed that all the people the people around the Elon Musk end of things, they're chattering about flying cars nowadays. Flying cars were an obsession in the nineteen fifties. So what we're looking at is that our dream these, these dreams, these marvelous things, these fantasies of the future are actually retro. We're already, I mean, Elon Musk is on his way to the retro future. He's trying to enact, you know, science fiction from the 1970s. The flying car people are trying to enact science fiction from the 1950s. Pretty soon, it's all going to be Jules Verne again. Um, Because all the bigger dreams have already failed. I mean, people are still chattering about going to Mars, but we're not going to Mars, okay? Okay. one of the things that everybody in the space, in, in the outer, whole outer space end of things, have been trying not to talk about for the last thirty years is that once you get outside the Van Allen belts, and by the way, the, the, the international space station and almost all space travel um, since the Apollo stuff has taken place inside the Van Allen belts. If you go out beyond them, you're facing. Hard radiation, huge amounts of hard radiation from the vast unshielded fusion reactor at the center of our solar system. Okay, it has been you know it has been calculated repeatedly. By the time you get to Mars, stay on Mars until the orbits line up and come back, because Mars has no magnetic field. Remember, it doesn't have any radiation shielding. Um, By the time you get back, you're going to be sick to death of radiation poisoning. Your chances of survival are not good. Your chances of dying of cancer in the next ten years are, if you happen to make it through the radiation sickness, aren't good either, and so your chances of surviving the cancer are not good at any rate. So the problem, everybody's trying to edge around the fact that we're not going to the stars, we're not even going to Mars, okay? Um, it's all a bunch of daydreams. It's a bunch of old science fiction clichés that people grew up with they're still stuck on and they're starting to fall back we've we've seen the gradual decline from you know it, it, um, enthusiastic comments about zooming off to the stars to now it's fixated on Mars i mean Mars was a big deal last in the 1940s and now you know now it's flying cars down here on earth so you can see already the dreams are scaling downwards because it's beginning to sink in That it's not happening, and this is the thing: people are still pushing that. No, 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 we're 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 going to have our flying cars. We're going to have our domed cities. We're going to have you know white tunics with shoulders out to (laughs) here. You know, you, you remember the old science fiction images exactly, except. It's exactly like the Soviet Union in its last ten years or so, when you had people still insisting at the top of their lungs that yes, the glorious, you know, the glorious workers' uh, utopia of the future is still going to happen. We will all eat strawberries and cream, when the whole system was cracking apart around them. What we can expect in the decades immediately ahead of us, and possibly fairly soon, is the the collapse of that. Fantasy—the collapse of the religion of progress, the same way that the dream of communism imploded—where all of a sudden, you know, across the across the the modern industrial world, all those millions of people who have been, you know, um, buying into the "we're going to Mars," etc., are just going to go, "We aren't, are we?" Oh, well, what do we do now? <laughs> and and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the retro future. It's one of the reasons I wrote the, the novel Retrotopia, to talk about, okay, how do we combine the past and the present? How do we look through our history and say, what worked? And pick this, pick that, pick the other thing.
2: Okay, so we've looked at some dimensions of our predicament, and uh, we're trying to move things forward a little bit. Now, that that's the problem. So the plan is deliberate technological regression, That, though, again, even for a lot of people, they'll hear technological re- regression and it all sound inherently negative because regression just doesn't sound have a good ring about it but uh we're not luddites here uh we can't we can't all live like the amish and in the book you set out uh you know you're basically looking at where we are in terms of technology and energy and the economy unsustainable systems so how can we put them on a more sustainable footing how can we have something that, uh, that we look back in the past, you've done a lot of this in detail in the book, what worked, and there were a lot of good technologies that have been, uh, sometimes quite old, very well established, that work very well, and as we said before, they've cut, they've been replaced by things that, some of which have been improvements, a lot of them increasingly are not, and this doesn't mean some kind of great step back on mass to some kind of vision of the past, because renewables, for example, you mentioned earlier about solar in the early days of that, can work perfectly well alongside older proven, appropriate or sustainable technology. And in fact, you even use, uh, you mentioned steampunk culture in the book as as one, one way of trying to get people to vision what it might be like, that to actually have a future 50 years, 100 years, you know, a thousand years from now, where... We haven't gone back to the caves, you know. We haven't we haven't regressed uh, in, in you know in psychological and social ways, but we've just finessed and found what's a more appropriate set, a suite of technology that works for us and that we can actually use over the long term. Exactly, and you, you've
0: touched on the most important theme of um of, of the retro future, which is what I call the heresy of technological choice. It is part of the religion of progress, and especially part of the marketing of the religion of progress, that so you don't get to choose what technology
1: you use. Whatever
0: technology some, some, the nice men from the nice corporations want to sell you, you just run right out and buy and throw out everything else you, pre, you earlier had because it's more progressive and you have to be progressive. You know? No. And the alternative, of course, they're the one, you know, the, the marketers of progress are always saying that if you, you know, if you go back to a flip phone, you might as well move back into a cave. Okay. If you don't have a cell phone at all, I mean, I'm talking on a landline right now. I don't do cell phones. Okay. But if I do a cell phone, I must obviously be in favor of the social customs of the 1950s. No, watch the illegitimate flat lumping together of the past as a single thing. Okay. That's done all the time. People will say, well, you can't turn the clock back. Well, I don't know about you, but I do it every, you know, every fall. When daylight savings time ends. (laughs) You can't, it's, but it's not a matter of turning back the clock. It's a matter, it's not a matter of going back to some past time. And this is funny because I had to are, I had to point this out over and over and over again in the online discussions. People were stuck on this notion that you can't adopt a a technology from the past without buying into the entire past, without moving back into the 1950s, the Victorian era, or the Middle Ages, or the caves. We have the power and we have the right to choose what technologies we want to use. If we don't want to use cell phones, ditch the damn cell phones. You do not have there, you know. You don't have to do that, and you don't stop living in the modern world just because you don't want a cell phone. Okay, it you don't have to start acting like you know it's the 1970s all over again just because you don't have a cell phone. Social change is one thing. Specific technologies are another you can pick and choose. And so in Retrotopia, in my novel, which was very much about this theme, you have this society where, where there are basically on a county-by-county basis, uh, different counties vote what kind of technological infrastructure they want. And there are various tiers going from about a 1950s level to an 1820s level. And how much infrastructure you want um, determines how high the taxes you pay. So if you are in a tier one, an 1820-style um, county, um, you pay the kind of taxes people paid in 1820, which is not very much. Now, does this mean that you're required to live in 1820s lifestyle? Absolutely not. It's just that's the infrastructure that the county provides. And so, in the sa- so what you ended up with is, is this bricolage of technologies from different eras. Where this works, this works, this works. These other things don't. Okay, we scrap them. And I also had my my retrotopia, my Lakeland Republic, which is basically a chunk of the of the American Midwest as an independent nation. Um, it's ethnically diverse. It's got um, a huge of no- different communities. You have um, same-sex couples. You have all of these so- these sort of quote progressive unquote social trends which are still ongoing today with an older technology, with a a slew, a random assortment uh, pulled together based on what works of older technologies. So the point, and this is absolutely the most crucial point of the book is you don't have to buy into the past. You're not, it's not back to the future. It's, treating the past as a smorgasbord. I think I'm going to take a scoop of this technology here from 1820. I'm going to take a scoop of this technology here from 1950. I'm going to take a scoop of this social set of social mores from right now, and I'm going to mix them together and they taste good. We can do that. And that, I think, is the most crucial thing to grasp and the thing that will, perhaps more than anything else, break the death grip of the false religion of progress.
2: Okay, well, what you said there, actually about not having to... Except all the social and cultural baggage that came with, um, you know, past times and older technology is very important because, uh, uh, critics of, of your position, for example, will very try and lump those things together as an easy way to dismiss your ideas. But, you know, it's, it's patent nonsense. As you say, we don't have to do that. And in fact, one of the things I liked about the, the Lakeland community in your novel, really, was just how civilized everything was. And I think the key thing about it, reading about the, the best aspects of it, you know, like uh, the characters going to a hotel for some cocktails and dinner or whatever, uh, buying, buying a newspaper, doing a lot of the things that we recognize today. The fact was, what made it work was that it was on a scale and at a speed that chimed with uh, us as human beings, if you see what I mean. And I think one of the main issues going forward is that what we do must be a smaller scale and slower and again those are of course painted as negative by many people but we've clearly reached a point where things um, many things are on too big a scale for us to be able to cope with or to manage or to sustain or to afford and things are very fast. There's a lot of talk these days about the pace of human life and people getting left behind or you know, coming a cropper and just falling off the conveyor. They just can't, you know, keep up anymore, etc., cetera, et cetera. And a lot of this is concentrated in the areas of technology. You know, people 24-7 connectivity, people just getting overwhelmed by it. So it's it's clear that we have whatever we've been able to do with technology, a lot of it we've done because it can be done, not because it was necessarily a good idea and there's a lot now happening as you said earlier about people choosing to get a flip phone or people choosing to get a physical book people individually making these decisions to do things on a on a more human scale well, it has to be, because one of the
0: things to keep in mind here is that it's not as though we can just keep on accelerating, keep on living the way we're living. We're burning through the resources of the planet. We're burning through the capacity of the planet to absorb our pollutants. And both of those are starting to land, us with, land on us with increasing force right now. Um, right now, um, in the United States, today in the United States, there are a couple of dozen coastal communities that flood with seawater every time they get a high tide and an onshore wind. These are communities that did not used to have seawater in the streets. Miami Beach is six inches underwater at a good high tide these days. That's just getting worse. Um, of course, the fires we had out in California um, over the over the summer and fall. Those and and the thing is, this is happening all over the world. So we can't just keep on doing what we're doing. And so one of the things that I've been talking about for a very long time now, and it deals with how we can how we can adapt to the situation, how we can respond constructively to it, the slogan is collapse now and avoid the rush. Since we are all going to be living with a lot less energy, a lot less connectivity, a lot less technology, um, start doing that now when you have time to learn how to do it and do it comfortably. Start doing it now where you can save some money and put that into making the transition a little easier for you. Start doing it now so it's not so you don't have to scramble for survival. You're already there. You're already comfortable. And this this is something I know. I know an increasing number of people who are doing it, whether because they heard me rabbiting on about it on a podcast or on a blog or something or simply because, you know, you were talking a moment ago about people falling off the treadmill. These days, people look at the treadmill and going, um, I think I'm going to step off the treadmill because it's just a treadmill. Because why do I want to be on the treadmill? And so, yeah, as, you, as you're saying, people are doing this. And that is actually, the single, in many ways, the single most important thing I think people can do to help build a more viable future. Just start building it now. Start living that way now. Figure out which technologies in your life, A, cost too much, B, you don't really want. Because many people don't actually want the technologies they've been, um, they've been made to use. I'm going to throw in an anecdote here. Um, many years ago, I used to belong to an organization called the Society for the Eradication of Television. Now, it's per- personal prejudice and so on, but um, I, I, I very strongly dislike TV. And one of the things we used to do, um, we would get some old TVs from a charity shop, and we would get um, a big round cloth, and we would get some gloves and some aprons and some face shields, some you know clear face shields, and some long handled sledgehammers, and we would raise funds. By going to a big public place, getting the permit and everything, and we have the brooms to clean up any fragments afterwards, and we would allow people. We'd say, you know, twenty-five cents, and you can you can per swing, and you can swing a sledgehammer and hit a television. Now, here's the thing: once you'd have this sort of nervous people would gather, looking nervous. Somebody would step up, pay their twenty-five cents, or more often stuff a dollar into their your hands so they could get take four swings, and then they'd go nuts. People. Actually, hate television. They hate it with a screaming passion. You have not—I don't—you've never really experienced this until you've watched some attractive woman in a nice, you know, nice dress and heels and well-made-up hair, screeching like a banshee. She she stuffed a twenty-dollar bill in your hand for the, you know, to go into the 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 coffers, and she's screeching like a banshee, wielding this long-handled sledgehammer, reducing a television to powder. She hates it so much because she knows perfectly well this thing is eating her life and eating her mind. So I look at that and I look at the other people. I know a lot of them who have like stopped. They've gotten rid of the television and now they have free time. Or they've gotten rid of the cell phone, and now they have some freedom. They don't have somebody, they don't have people harassing them 24-7. Or they've got rid of this, they've got rid of that, they've gotten rid of the other, they've gone. They've taken up an old-fashioned craft, and all of a sudden, they're producing useful and beautiful things, and everyone's going, whoa. And all of these things, they're making these changes, and their lives are better because they're collapsing ahead of the rush, because they're backing away from things that are way past the point of diminishing returns. Things that are dysfunctional, things that are harmful, things that mess them over. This is the wave of the future. Regress, deliberate technological regression, saying, no, I'm not going to have that technology. I don't want it anymore. It doesn't do anything for me. Bye. That's
2: the future. I remember when I was a student, uh, we had a big old TV in the house that I shared with a couple of other guys. It was one of you know one of the, you know, obviously not flat screen way before that. So it had a tube in it. And it was almost as deep as it was wide. I mean, it, it took two of us to actually get it out of the house into the backyard. This is when it stopped working. I think maybe we came home one night from the student union. Maybe we were a bit worse for wear. And, uh, <laughs> one of the guys that I lived with, um, it was a bit of a, um, I think mean, in America, you've got the term Anglophile. For people who are, who are kind of into British stuff, I'm not sure if there's whatever the equivalent of a British person who's into American stuff is. This guy was one, so he had he had a couple of baseball bats because he was into baseball. And I picked his aluminium, or as you would say, aluminium baseball bat up and went into the yard and uh, set the TV up uh, on top of the barbecue actually. And I just went at the, no, I hadn't taken the precaution of covering myself up, but I just went at the screen with the baseball bat, and the the tube exploded showered me from head to toe in in fragments of glass so
0: (laughs) we would have encouraged back in there we would encourage you to have the the face screen the apron and the big heavy gloves so as to keep them keep the fragments of glass down but i bet you felt really good when it when it exploded
2: it was it was visceral you know because i've never really been been one for physical activity and that that was a visceral thrill i have to say (laughs) exactly no the the last television i ever owned the last tel- well, actually, my wife owned
0: it, but this is shortly after we moved in together. Um, uh, let's see, yeah, before we were married, um, we were um, there was one some crisis or other. It, we she she'd been given the television by her brother because he couldn't stand the thought that some people would have not have a television. So we stuck it in the closet underneath the vacuum cleaner. And there it sat. And then at one point, there was some kind of international crisis. We decided we couldn't get a, any a good news uh, channel on the radio. So we pulled the television out, plugged in. It didn't work. It had, Something had stopped working while it was sitting under the vacuum cleaner. So I looked at my wife and she looked at me and I said, can I? And she said, please. And so we were, we were in a second floor apartment. I took the thing out on the fire escape and dropped it two stories straight down into the dumpster, which was open and empty. The Flash and bang as the picture tube imploded was really the most entertaining thing that had ever been on that television. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, there's there's much to be said for this. And um I, I wasn't I, I, I didn't have the advantage of being somewhat worse for wear. Um but but then I didn't get any I didn't have to pick any glass fragments out of my clothing. So
2: yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was doing that for like, um, <clears throat> the next 48 hours, I think, finding glass in all sorts of places. Well, a, a couple of, before I move to my next point, there's a couple of things that have popped into my head. One from directly from your book, uh, the retro future, of course, which is what we're talking about. And one from my own personal experience, which you might not have heard about. The one from your book was, and I, I went straight to the internet to look this up. We've been talking somewhat about technologies from the past that, that were extremely good for what they were, but they, you know, they've passed into history, presumably never to be revived, but actually it might be a really good thing to think about when we're looking to solve some problems in the future. And thinking about shipping, I had never ever heard of these things called wind jammers, uh, that you talk about in the book because they had a relatively short life, uh, in terms of like they were developed and then suddenly became as the, as the economy and the market at the time determined, um, obsolete. Now I looked up, the first thing I did was a Google image search, or sorry, say Google, your preferred search engine, image search. And I thought, my God, look at these things. They're absolutely awesome.
0: The, yeah, the the great, the, the last, the last big commercial sailing ships, wind jammers, four and five masts, six and seven sails to the skies. They were huge. They carried immense cargoes. You can find, uh, probably in your local public library, books by Alan Villiers, who actually was a, 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 a sea writer, basically. He wrote uh, ocean stories and, and stories about his travels. But he actually grew up as a kid sailing these windjammers to and from, uh, from Britain to Australia and back again. And it was, it's just, yeah, there was this entire world of big, wind-powered, transport ships, not the fast clipper ships. These are things that kind of lumber along, frankly. But if you're carrying, you know, a couple of hundred thousand tons of grain from the Australian wheat fields um to um markets in Britain, uh, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter if you lumber a little bit. And so yeah, there's this there was this entire world of these things. The technology is still known. The technology is understood, it's documented. We could bring these things back into use and you know what? They use no fuel but the wind, they're amazing.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. So that's it's a really good example of something that uh, we'd all recognize. It's a big sailing ship, uh, but actually it's not horrendously inefficient or antiquated or outdated. It does what it was designed to do very well. And it would still be, if it didn't have, and it may not have in the future, if it didn't have the competition from modern equivalents, suddenly it would become viable again. The other thing, well, I don't know why this randomly sprung into my mind, but you may not be aware of it. Uh, when I was in Iceland, I've been there several times, and my host, I remember on the very first day, advised me uh, when I went off to take a shower, he explained how the hot water was generated. Now, as many people to their cost may remember, uh, Iceland is a volcanic island, uh, still very actively volcanic, and I don't know if it's right across the whole island, but it's certainly in in Reykjavik, the capital, and when I was also in a small town on the complete opposite side of the island, the hot water, the hot water in the apartments was volcanic. Uh, and that was pumped up from the depths of the earth uh in Iceland, not not actually very deep, and it was a way, it's basically free hot water, if you see what I mean. So that's how, that they're using nature to their advantage. Now the only disadvantage, and this is what my host was warning me about, is that the uh, shower in the bathroom, and well, in the, the hot water generally in the house, smelt of sulfur. For people who don't know what that smells like, it's basically rotten eggs. That took some getting used to. Oh, yeah, yeah. You no, know, ge-
0: geothermal, geothermal water heating. There was a huge attempt to do geothermal as a way to generate electricity. That was a big thing in the 1970s. It didn't work too well because it's hard to get enough concentrated heat to run a turbine or something like that. But for something like hot water, It's a perfectly sensible use. And so when you've got a volcanic, you know, you you got hot layers of rock not too far below the surface. It's a great thing to do. You've got all the hot water you could possibly need. Um, In the same way, in areas that get a lot of sun most of the year, um, solar water heaters work extremely well. Now, the same, these things dropped generally out of use for the same reason that the wind jammers dropped out of use, which is that they could be outcompeted by cheap fossil fuels. As we run out of cheap fossil fuels, and we're rapidly running out of cheap fossil fuels, I think we all know, um, these things are going to are going to come very very much in handy. And all that matters at this point is that enough people learn how to make them. And learn how to run them. Fortunately, solar water heaters are still in very wide use in large parts of the world today. That's not a problem. Wind jammers, um, smaller sailing vessels are, are actually already profitable these days. There are people who are doing um, specialty, um, specialty cargo shipping. You know, just little little cargoes, not nothing that large enough to fit in a container. Okay, but you want a, you want small cargoes to take from from say Britain to the east coast of North America and back again, luxury products, things like that. Um, a schooner is a perfectly economical way to do it because it costs you nothing for fuel, and so uh, there are people already doing that who are you know paying for their boats. And paying the the salaries of the crew by, you know, swinging by Ireland and picking up top end Irish cheeses and taking them by schooner across the Atlantic to sell in luxury, um, luxury stores in, in, um, Boston and New York. Oh yeah. There's, there, there are a lot of people just on the, on the fringes of the, of the official economy. Okay. If we can, I, here's a, a useful term. Or way of thinking about. It. We have an official economy which consists of Fortune 500 corporations, the antics of the stock market, um, all the, the the stuff you find in the big stores, and then you have a sort of not not even underground, but a kind of semi-underground economy. It's not illegal. It's just nobody talks about it because it's small. It doesn't get the media it doesn't get the people don't know about it because it's quiet because it's, you know, some, you know, some, a a bunch of guys who own a schooner who decide, you know, Hey, we can, we can do back and forth across the Atlantic with cargoes of Irish cheese. (laughs) And, and they're doing it and they're making a living at it. And that's, that I think there's a real tendency when we look at the mess we're in and the big problems to think, well, the only possible solutions are these grandiose projects. Um, no, actually, what's actually going to help most is individuals making choices in their own lives. We've got to start at the grassroots or it's not, going to, it's not going to make any difference at all. And so the people who are doing things like that, the people who are ditching their televisions, the people who are picking up old crafts, the people who are, who are collapsing now and avoiding the rush, those are the people who are building the future. And the Elon Musks of the world with their orbital, um, their orbital cars, a hundred years from now, people are going to go, Elon, who?
2: Well, thinking about uh, some further dimensions of the future, how things may pan out, there's a lot of talk these days about recycling, uh, you know, in response to kind of various environmental concerns, but in a much more profound, large-scale way, uh, recycling is going to be an important part of the future, I think. Certainly, you know, from from the perspective that you're setting out in your book, um, salvage you know, repurposing things, whether it's a case that resources um, are not available to us anymore, just they're run out, they've been depleted, or whether we don't have, uh, we can't afford to run the technologies to, to manufacture things the way we did in the past. I mean, an example that you've given more than once in your books is the amount of structural steel that exists in the world. It's absolutely colossal and that can be recycled, repurposed, reused for many different things for centuries ahead. So whatever the pros and cons of the way of living, the economy, the lifestyle that gave rise to all this stuff, uh, there, there's a lot there that we will, we will need and want to call to call upon to, to use again.
0: It's actually very common in the downside of this, of, of the life cycle of the civilization, for people in in the aftermath to use the what's left over from the civilization as their major resource base. Um, for for centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire, the usual way. Place you got building stone was to go to the, the the nearest former Roman city and just walk away with blocks of building stone, um, and yeah, we'll be in exactly the kind the same kind of situation for you know here in the United States probably a thousand years. Um, people will still be breaking open concrete to get the rusted rebar out of it because rust it's easy to, rust is iron ore. Very pure iron ore. It's easy to smelt. So, but on, in a broader level, yeah, exactly. We've got all of the resources. We've got the intellectual resources. We've got the resource, the knowledge base. We've got, um, the physical resources. We've got all kinds of stuff that have been gathered together over the course of, um, our age of extravagance. And many of those things are going to be extremely useful in the age ahead. Some of them won't be. I'm quite sure that a lot of what um, is left over from our civilization, people in the future are going to look at and say, why? But that's usually what happens.
2: Exactly. And there's a few other manifestations that are moving of this type of phenomenon that are moving from the niche and the trendy and the sort of thing that the well-off can afford to do as a kind of a virtue signaling sort of luxury uh, into more mainstream arenas i'm thinking now of the general trends that you might call share and repair uh whether it's car pools or you know a community workshop from from which you can borrow tools uh that you know why why do we all need to have like an, an you know an electric drill a jigsaw you know and necessarily do we all have do we do we all have to have a lawnmower if we've got like you know a six foot by six foot lawn sort of thing and um but also some of these community workshops will do things like uh, repair your toaster or your kettle. Or these things that are currently are cheaper to throw away than to actually repair, and repairing them is often impossible. So all this kind of share and repair culture is definitely, and sometimes through necessity, you know, people just can't afford it, But people are also actively choosing this.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so the, the thing is, it's necessity is a good thing in this case, because one of the great things about necessity is that it tells you what you have to do. And since there's a lot of things that we have to do, and a lot of people are having a certain amount of cluelessness in getting around to doing them, I'm very much in favor of necessity. But it's also true, yeah, that people are looking at the situation, saying, you know, if I don't own my own lawnmower, if I simply, if we simply, you know, everyone in the neighborhood we share these three lawnmowers, um, then it's going to cost a lot less money for each of us. And in that case, um, I'm going to have more money to do other things with, you know, so there are advantages. And, you know, as with some of the things we talked about earlier, you know, you get rid of your television, you get four to six hours a day of free time that you didn't have before. And you know, wow, what a concept. And so, yeah, there's there's there are huge advantages toward collapsing now and avoiding the rush. There's a huge advantage to looking at, looking at the very extravagant way which we live today, looking and saying, okay, what are the things that, what are the ways that we're living that just don't work anymore? What are the ways that never really did work? What are the extravagances that we can just say, uh, go away, let's do something simpler that might actually make our lives better? That's a huge place to start. Because one of the one of the deep dark secrets of the, the you know the glorious utopia of progress of technological advancement of the world that progress has made around us it sucks for most people nowadays living in the modern industrial world sucks and it doesn't have to and the reason it sucks is not that we don't have enough machines and we don't have enough technological gimcracks. And techno trash of various kinds is because we have too much. It's because we're spending all of our time running our machines and much less time actually having a life. And so that's where, that's one of the places where we can get, where, where this kind of thing can really get in a foothold when people realize, hold it, my life sucks and I can make it suck less by getting rid of the cell phone. I can make it suck less by getting rid of the television. I can make it suck less by doing something else with my time other than playing with a machine. I can do, I can make it suck less by, you know, sharing tools with the neighbors. And, and so on and so forth. There's this vast range of things that all actually benefit the people who do it. of course, we were talking about heresy, or I was talking about heresy a while ago. That is, I mean, that's not merely heresy. That's blasphemy to say that, you know, uh, getting rid of machines can make your life suck less. But it's true. And that's one of the things that a lot of people are beginning to figure out now.
2: In previous conversations that we've had, I've spoken about, I don't have children myself, but friends of mine who do, uh, when they've been speculating about... You know, they're reaching a certain point, you know, university or college type age. You know, what should I do with my future? I'm not sure. Blah, blah, blah. And they're looking at some of the popular options put before them, like, you know, do business management degree or whatever. Or maybe you want to do humanities, you know, which is, again, totally non-vocational. But, you know, valid, uh, of course. But, you know, in the current economy, what would that lead to? And I've said to them, consider doing something practical, something useful that you could learn a real skill that you, you can be with you all your life. And I think going forward, whether it's young people wondering how to make their, be, begin making their way in the world, maybe it's older, older people who've been made redundant in the economy. It, as a society, if we can develop, cultivate, encourage, nurture, nurture practical skills, uh, right, right through to perhaps aspects of our sometimes moribund cultural life, we we be that could be a very good thing. I mean, everything from low tech construction skills and engineering, how to bake good bread, how to make good beer, how to repair shoes. You know, I don't know how to do that. How to give a good haircut. Now that wouldn't really apply to you, but <laughs> and from a cultural point of view. Are you a musician? You know, maybe that there will always be a need for something beyond bare necessities. You know, story storytelling, and all of these things are things that have had value in, in human culture it, from time immemorial. And um, I had a friend today. In fact, um, I'd never heard of them before, but I've got a friend here uh, who's part of a reenactment society, and he told me about he told me about the society for creative anachronism. Uh, which I then remembered, oh, hang on a minute, I read about that in John's book. <laughs> so, there's lots of things that we can, uh, forget about what we're being sold and told as like the way to economic security in the future. There are many things that are eternal, really, in human culture that, that we could learn to do.
0: Well, here, here's something that, um, for, for our British listeners especially. Um, I have a number of friends in Britain, and one of the things I've heard from many of them is that getting somebody to fix your plumbing or to do basic household repairs is impossible. It's a re- It takes an enormous, an enormous amount of time. You know, you get. You know, you have you have a leaking. You have a leak. Uh, you know, in in your plumbing. Okay, let's see. I can get to you. it's It's February now. I can probably get to you in August. <laughs> okay. And because everybody's being funneled into the liberal arts education or the business or what have you, and nobody's going to learn how to fix plumbing or how to do household repairs. If I were, you know, if I were asked to advise a young person in Britain today what to do, learn, become a plumber, Go to get your plumbing apprenticeship. Go through the process. Learn how to fix pipes, and then hang out your shingle and go around and fix people's pipes. There are um, there are people all over the country apparently who are, who are desperate for somebody who can just you know fix a leaky pipe. Because nobody's learning those skills. In the United States it's the same way. Nobody is the kids are being funneled into the universities. That's partly to prop up the academic industry and here it is an industry, a very corrupt industry. But um, increasingly, we're hearing, I'm hearing from young people who are saying, I am not going to go to the university. I don't want to end up owing a, you know, a quarter million dollars in debt, which I will never be able to pay off, and having no job skills. And they're going and getting apprenticeships as plumbers and as carpenters and bricklayers, as all kinds of things like that, where they have a practical skill, where they can get hired. The moment they walk out of their of their, tra- their basic training program, they're snapped up. They've got a job. And, you know, they're working for, they're working with, with, you know, a more experienced plumber or more experienced electrician or what have you, whatever they're into and going on, they're on the job immediately. And by the time they've done that for 10 or 15 years, working for somebody else, they're ready to, to go out on their own. They have a long, they, they have a lifetime career ahead of them doing stuff that actually the people will pay them for, will, you know, hand over money in, in, in wads to say, please fix my pipes. And so, yes, you're absolutely right that there's a lot of skills, a lot of really straightforward skills that the entire educational system as it currently exists is meant. To discourage you from doing because everybody 's obsessed about propping up the universities and no 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 we've got to have a, we've got to have lots of people who have um you know degrees in post colonial film studies well, which is fine, mind you post colonial film studies are very important, but that needs like two professors a year in the united states that 's the total number of openings um, that's you know and if you 're not Going to be one of those two professors a year, maybe, you know, instead of the, you know, a couple of hundred graduates a year, who all end up flipping burgers if they can find a job doing that. No. Get your plumber. Get, get your, go, go, go apprentice with a plumber. You'll be much happier. And if you want to study po- post-colonial film studies on your own time, do that thing.
2: Oh yeah, I'm sure there's lots of like plumbers and electricians who are into like philosophy and metaphysics and stuff in their evenings. You know, that's fine. fine. Oh oh, yeah, actually, actually, I know some of them. I I know
0: a guy who's an electrician who is who is very deeply into philosophy and, and things like that. And yeah. You know, he he puts in his eight hours on the job site, doing you know running cable and and you know doing things like that, and then you know, and that's it's a problem solving thing. It's not dumb work at all. It requires a lot of knowledge. And then they go home and have dinner and they sit back and you know (laughs) pile into a volume of Nietzsche or what have you. So yeah, that's that's and that's something that a lot of people used to do, and a lot of people can do it again.
2: Speaking of uh, similar sort of developments, share and repair, and what we've just been talking about localism is something that we've discussed before in, in interviews and and also you know in slow movements uh, localism meaning you know local production of stuff that's consumed locally it can mean things like local currencies and the slow the slow movement obviously is an established actual thing you know it's slow food and all the other things that are slow but they are also a response to some of the hyperspeed developments that we've been talking about and but they call it slow for example, and they emphasise local. But really, again, it, this reflects what I was saying earlier, it's it's human scale in terms of size and speed. So slow, again, can be interpreted as a negative, can't it? Oh, so slow, you know, if everything takes so long. But actually, slow food, to use my favourite example, that was the aspect of the slow movement, isn't it much better to have time to enjoy your lunch rather than just grab a a mick lunch that you stuffed on your gullet before you have to race back to the office you know exactly no seriously seriously if you have a mug of good beer you want to take some time drinking
0: it and in fact you know one of the reasons that we have this rush rush hurry hurry attitude nowadays is again so much of our lives suck and we want to rush away from this thing that sucks away from that other thing that sucks you know get through a meal that sucks fast enough that we don't have to pay attention to how bad it tastes and then go back to a job that sucks and we keep ourselves running um at top speed so we don't have to notice how much it sucks and so so but when you stop and catch your breath and slow down then you suddenly go why don't i do something else why don't i get some food that's worth eating why don't i find a job that's worth having why don't i live a life rather than having a lifestyle <laughs> you know here get a life and you know, these things these things are possible and slowing down is a crucial part of it because you have to get back to the human scale and we have those choices of course we try to convince ourselves we don't and a, the vast number of advertisers and marketing people and propagandists of every kind love to convince us that we don't have that choice. Don't believe them, folks. They're lying to you. You have the choice. You can slow down. You can step off the treadmill. You can junk your television. You can ditch your cell phone. You can listen to good podcasts like this one instead and um, and actually have a life.
2: Uh, In response to what you just said, uh, people do, and anyone who's listening to this may experience some pushback in some of these areas if they're deciding to make some changes in their life to get a little bit more control over their technology and their time and where things are going. And in your book, The Retro Future, you uh, give the example of uh, Sarah Chrisman and uh, and uh, her partner husband i can't remember exactly what but from yeah from from Port Townsend they're uh, basically they're, their choice you know what they've decided to do is basically have what we would understand as a victorian lifestyle now it seems it seems from my looking at their, even though they do have a web presence and a facebook page and everything else that just seems to be the, the period of time that appeals to them and it seems that the aesthetics they're very much into. But regardless, they've just decided, to, you know, we're having this particular lifestyle, it's what works for us, we like it. But I was disappointed, but perhaps not surprised to read about some of the uh, retaliation, and I don't think that's too too big a word. And it's interesting what motivates that. Mm-hmm. People, the 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 thing is, people, uh, remember, progress
0: is a religion. People believe in progress the way medieval peasants believed in Christianity. Okay. And so if you find somebody who is rejecting progress that means they must be evil. And so the the Christmans who have uh, from from any other perspective these people have the least um problematic hobby on the planet, okay? They like to live a Victorian lifestyle. They they ride a penny the big penny farthing bicycles with the big front wheels. You know, they they dress in Victorian styles, they cook Victorian food. That that's just what they want to do and people People accuse them of being personally responsible for everything awful that the Victorian, that people in the Victorian era ever did because the past remember is the hell from which the Messiah of progress is saving us just as the future is the heaven toward which the Messiah of progress is leading us. So th- by living their lives and being happy in a Victorian lifestyle, um, the chrismans are, they they are they are blaspheming against the great god of progress. And they're also producing horrible cognitive dissonance in everybody who is a, a true believer in progress because these people, the chrismans, are happy doing what they are and you're not supposed to be happy in the past, remember? And so remember, you know, all these people whose lives suck, Who are dealing with modern, um, the modern conveniences, such as they are, who are stumbling their way, buying the things they're supposed to buy, believing the things they're supposed to believe, listening to the chatter of the television by the hour, um, and the Christians are having a good time. Now, the, of course, this is, there is that Puritan streak in the Western world's religion. Puritanism has been defined as the sneaking, horrible suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time. And that's a lot of what's going on here. People are 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 progress puritans, and the thought that somebody might be having a good time by enjoying the past—oh my God—it's like having sex or something. Um, but to my mind, the Christians again are the way of the future. They're you know a little more a little more f- sing- single focused than I would want to be. Um, I don't want any one period of the past. I want to be able to pick and choose from the past and say, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. I don't care if they didn't go together in a particular era. But they're, you know, the, what the Christians are doing is you that is, is you know, showing off that awkward thing, freedom, freedom of choice. And that's another thing, of course, that makes people horribly upset because you're not supposed to have that. You're supposed to be totally free to run out along with your neighbors and buy exactly what they buy. <laughs> and that's how much freedom you're supposed to have.
2: In the short term going forward, a lot of what we're facing may be about kind of coping and managing the situation, muddling muddling through, you know, damage limitation as we engage in that step down process I mentioned earlier of, of gradual decline. You know, decline of some things and, you know, ascent of others. But there's kind of a, a gift in crisis, you know, the opportunity that's there. And I think that if we're saying that we should collectively rethink what's possible it's also we should rethink what's thinkable if you see what i mean because i think a lot of what we think about is possible in the future what we're we going to do about this okay we've got problems a b and c potential solutions are you know only as follows but actually if we can change our process of thinking then we'll realize we've got there are many more options on the table than than we sometimes believe absolutely
0: because in fact what one of the one of the Major booby traps hardwired into the religion of progress is the idea that the only, whatever problem you have, there's only one solution doing more of what you're already doing. And if what you're already doing is causing your problems, that is a recipe for disaster. And that's what we're seeing right around us right now. You know, we're plowing nose first into catastrophic climate change. Or what is everyone saying? We need more technology. Well, that's what's got us into this problem. Burn more energy. Well, that's what got us into this problem. Nobody's nobody's willing to think. Well, if what we're doing doesn't work, why don't we do something else? Because that's not progress. The great God, progress will turn his back on us. We'll be condemned to the horrors of the past for all eternity, and that's literally what they think. Um, I, I I call on the heretics who are listening. I call on all those who are capable of thinking an in independent thought to just shake themselves and say, you know, we don't have to keep doing the same stuff. We don't have to make the same mistakes over and over again, convincing ourselves that they're not mistakes because that's progress. They're mistakes. We tried it. It didn't work. Let's do something different. And let's start by looking back at what worked in the past and saying, well, you know, if this object that I have in my hand, this high-tech gizmo, doesn't work, chuck it. And that thing that we had back 20 years ago that did work, let's do that one instead. That's all I'm saying.
2: Well, just a closing thought, really. Um, you've been very vocal in the past about pointing out how black and white visions of the future, you know, utopia or dystopia, you know, Mad Max or Star Wars, that these are not just the, the only choices open to us. And that's generally not how things happen anyway. It's just that they're, they're convenient because they provide for people visions of absolute disaster. Therefore, there's nothing we can do or um, absolute triumph. therefore There is nothing we should do. You mentioned collapse now and avoid the rush, despite last admissions for that maybe being closed. there is still much that can be done and it's worth pointing out that we have uh, we've been talking about historical precedents for a lot of what's going on, but the utopias and dystopias of the past that were mooted everything from space nineteen ninety nine I don't know if you remember that series through through to death race two thousand now I'm putting emphasis on the dates there nineteen ninety nine and two thousand The point is that these have not materialized there's probably a reason for that.
0: Yeah, exactly. There is nothing more educational, really, than to go back um, to, like, the 1950s and read articles about what what kind of, like, we're supposed to be living right now. Um, I hope I'm not going to shock anyone by saying that all those predictions were dead wrong. They were just completely dead wrong, all the mainstream predictions. There were people who who more or less figured out what was going on, but they were way out on the fringes, like you and me. And so... Yeah, when, when when you hear the official version of what the future is going to be, whether it's utopia or oblivion, whether it's, you know, fantastic catastrophes or equally fantastic, wonderful, wonderfulness or what have you, um, it's garbage. Don't worry about it. Um, humanity muddles through. Now, humanity muddles through sometimes with uh, the collapse of civilizations, the, um, you know, the drastic declines in population, uh, disasters, um, ecological catastrophes, all kinds of things like that. Um, but, that doesn't mean the end of the world. It also doesn't mean Star Trek. It means history. And really, I think as a final note, I would just encourage our readers, while they're looking into um, things they might borrow from the past, History is the record of the experience of the past. Find out what happened to the last half dozen civilizations that outrun, outran their resource base. It wasn't an overnight collapse into the caves. It was, in fact, what we're going through right now, where we've been kind of through the early stages of it. And you can learn stuff. And among other things, it's very comforting because you can go, oh, so we've been here before. We as a species have been here before. This is not the first civilization that's made the stupid mistakes that we've made. And and that's, you know, you can stop and say, okay, so this is what we mistake here are the mistakes we've made, here are the consequences, this is what's going to happen. Here is how I can live my life relatively constructively in the face of all these changes. It's not that hard. So that's kind of my final note on that.
2: Okay, John. Well today we've been talking about your book, The Retro Future, Looking to the Past to Reinvent the Future. That's widely available. Perhaps you'd like to, just in closing, tell listeners about your blog, Ecosophia, as we mentioned earlier, and any current or forthcoming publications. I know, for example, that the aforementioned ArchDruid Report, uh, you've got a lot of that being be made available currently in a series of uh, print editions, which, uh, I'm, uh, personally, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: so so my blog, ecosophia.net, um, E-C-O-S-O-P-H-I-A.net, um, that has weekly posts on a wide range of giddy subjects um, I also yeah uh, the let's see the the Archwood report I think the first four of ten volumes of the collected Archwood report are now the other six are in process and should be out shortly um, other than that let's see what do I have coming out right now I don't have any more books on um, the future industrial society in process just at this moment I'm mostly working on books on um, Oh the history various historical topics. I have a book out on the way on the history of secret societies, so that you know, it's it's kind of a copy table book, but it was fun. Um and then I'm as as I had mentioned earlier, I am I'm doing a lot of fiction these days. Um I have the first two volumes of a seven volume series that takes the fantasy of HP Lovecraft and stands it on its head. The tentacled horrors, they were the good call uh, deal. Um, the Weird of Holly is the series, the first two volumes, um Innsmouth and Kingsport, the restoring process. So that's kind of where I
2: am. Well, John, once again, thank you so much for joining us again today on legalizedfreedom.com. It's always a pleasure.